Thanks for joining us coming up tonight. Global stock market volatility. This as banking fears continue. European bank stocks are hammered. German heavyweight Deutsche Bank lost a fifth of its value this month. President Biden's vaccine mandate blocked by a federal appeals court. Why? We have details later. Parental permission required to use social media. It's now the law in the state of Utah. As leaders and as parents, we have a responsibility to protect our young people. How is this going to impact kids? An AI startup goes from zero to a billion dollar valuation overnight. Character.ai lets you create your own AI avatar that you can then chat with. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. Wall Street closed higher today, marking the end of a rocky week as officials tried to calm investors over a potential liquidity crisis in the banking sector. All three major indexes started the day lower after a sell-off among European banks, triggered by troubles with Germany's Deutsche Bank. More on that in just a moment. But those worries eased by mid-afternoon. At closing, the Dow rose 132 points, or 0.4 percent. S&P gained 22 points, or 0.6 percent. And the Nasdaq added 37 points, 0.3 percent. Meanwhile, bank stocks fell sharply in Europe today. Heavyweight Deutsche Bank shares fell for three days straight. This as worries that banking sector problems are not contained. The German bank's shares lost a fifth of their value so far this month. Deutsche Bank is the largest bank in Germany, the world's fourth largest economy. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was in Brussels today. He was quick to reassure that Deutsche Bank was sound. Deutsche Bank has fundamentally modernized and reorganized its business model, and it is a very profitable bank. There is no need to worry about anything. Default insurance costs have gone up for Deutsche Bank, has jumped to a record four-year high, according to data from S&P Market Intelligence. This suggests that people are worried about the German bank defaulting. The global banking sector has been rocked since the collapse of the two U.S. banks. The fears have led to rising volatility in stock markets around the world. Joining me is Sam Burns, Chief Strategist at Mill Street Research. Now, I wanted to ta- talk to you about uh, Deutsche Bank today. It's in the news uh, a lot. Uh, stocks falling. Just briefly, what's happening here? I think this is a continuation of a lot of the worries that investors have had about banks in general, and particularly some of the uh, weaker European banks. Uh, There's several of them that are down sharply today, and and Deutsche Bank is kind of leading the way. Uh, I don't know that there's any specific major event from Deutsche Bank other than possibly uh, them offering to buy back some of their debt. Um, I think that there's more of a broader concern that that there are sort of un- Unknown, as yet unknown uh, balance sheet problems there, and that uh, investors are kind of uh, taking you know, the shoot first and ask questions later approach uh, to, to sell or to, to hedge their exposure to those banks, and uh, and then you know uh, wait to see if the you know news develops or not. So I think it's more of a broader pattern of, uh, of nervousness about banks and uh, and hoping that the authorities will step in to uh, to, to stem any issues uh, in the meantime. Are you specifically worried about any of this? Um, it's definitely a concern. I think uh, so far, at least, the, uh, the the reactions have been larger than the, the underlying true problems. Uh, I think that uh, uh, people have gotten very nervous because of the problems we had with the Silicon Valley Bank and the Credit Suisse over in Europe had. Uh, but with, with, there was a certain things that were specific to them that are not systemic, uh, that apply to all banks. 
There are certain risks that all banks are facing uh, in terms of losses on their bond portfolios, which is really the core of a lot of this. The fact that rates have risen so fast has caused losses on the, the bonds that they hold, even if the bonds themselves are, are, are good, meaning they're not, they're not uh, going to, to default. They're just simply uh, have been repriced due to interest rates. And I think that's what everyone's trying to, to take in, into account right now is you know, where are those losses, who's going to have them, and, uh, and can the authorities kind of balance it out with liquidity provision and things like that. Are these worries uh, justified to you, or maybe they're just based on purely fear? Uh, there are some of them that are probably justified. I think the ones that are at most risk are going to be some of the smaller uh, banks that you know let their uh, risk exposures get get too high, and then uh, had you know depositors get nervous. I think um, a lot of what these authorities have done, um, certainly in terms of uh, covering deposit insurance and offering liquidity to banks in, in, in additional ways, has helped uh, you know stem that to some degree. Uh, and I think they've shown that they're willing to step in to uh, prevent systemic issues. So I think that's really the concern, uh, is that it would become a systemic issue, and I don't see that happening so far. Uh, I'm also looking at the earnings estimates that analysts produce for banks and, uh, and financials in general, and not seeing so far uh, a huge uh, change in their forecasts. So uh, analysts are not seeing this as a reason to reduce their earnings forecasts broadly uh, across banks in general so far. And that tells me that there's probably uh, less of a systemic issue than uh, individual banks that, that are having issues. Are you in the position that there may be another domino to fall, or are you seeing otherwise? Yeah, that's always the question: is you know, are there other things that people haven't figured out yet, or other banks that might uh, you know have issues? Um, I don't see anything at, at the moment uh, that I you know identify as a major risk. Uh, you know, I'm not a bank specialist, but uh, looking at the aggregate for banks and, and financials in general, like I say, I'm not seeing broad-based uh, changes in analyst forecasts, and I'm not seeing the kind of um, activity in the in the macro environment that would suggest uh, you know a lot of more dominoes to fall. And in fact, the, the the rise in bond prices, the fall in bond yield recently, has actually been helpful uh, in in, in uh, addressing some of the issues that banks are facing in terms of their balance sheets. So I think I think it'll be a problem that gets worked through. I don't think it's anything like 2008 or other you know financial crises. Uh, I think it's more of a, a contained issue than that. All right. Thank you very much, Sam. It's a pleasure having you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. A federal appeals court yesterday halted the Biden administration's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal workers nationwide. The move reverses a previous ruling that upheld the vaccine mandate. The case started when a group of federal workers sued, saying the mandate likely exceeded the Biden administration's authority. The court previously ruled that the workers should have taken their complaints somewhere else, specifically an entity called the Merit Systems Protection Board. That's where federal workers facing discipline can appeal. But the appeals court yesterday found that the case falls outside that entity's jurisdiction. Biden's team argued that the president has the same authority as a CEO of a private corporation to mandate vaccinations for employees. But the majority of the court yesterday rejected that argument. The White House plans to end the COVID emergency on May 11th. Utah is the first U.S. state where kids need parental permission to use social media platforms. Governor Spencer Cox signed two new laws yesterday. Our administration is very concerned about how social media is affecting our children. Youth rates of depression and other mental health issues are on the rise, and social media companies know their products are toxic. They designed their apps to be addictive.
As leaders and as parents, we have a responsibility to protect our young people. Users will have to submit proof of age before opening a social media account. Anyone under 18 would need permission from a parent to sign up. That's going to be for sites like TikTok and Instagram. The laws also prohibit minors from using social media between the hours of 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. The new laws will also make it easier to sue social media companies for damages. On the other hand, tech industry lobbyists are calling the laws unconstitutional. They say they violate people's right to free speech online. The popular AI chatbot ChatGPT will have access to much more information. It can now connect to the internet, whereas before it only got information from training data, which ended in 2021. And T.D. Marshall asks, how would this help users? On Friday, OpenAI launched plugins for ChatGPT, which allowed to access third-party knowledge sources and databases, including the internet. Aranansu Pitanyak, who works for Microsoft, filled me in on some basic details. So now that ChatGPT can connect to internet, you can actually ask it to say, okay, uh, get me the answer from the internet and it would um, browse the internet and get real-time answer to questions and give you the most up-to-date answer. Added plugin functionality can allow ChatGPT to do things like retrieve real-time information, like sports scores, stock prices, and the latest news, create knowledge-based information in the form of company docs and personal notes, and perform actions on behalf of users like booking a flight and ordering food. A waitlist is available to ChatGPT users and developers. I also spoke with James Barlow, who uses ChatGPT for business, to find out how he would use it. I think it's just going to make the ability to find information on the internet much more efficient and much faster, you know, and, and how ChatGPT will ultimately compile that and present that to, um, you know, the user. Uh, will It will help us to find more relevant data, uh, you know, through search faster. Tanyak also mentioned the risks to internet live connections. The risk is that the answer that a ChatGPT is getting from the internet, it might be from an unreliable source, which might lead to misinformation, right? Because ChatGPT does not have a way to classify which source on the internet is reliable or unreliable. There are a few risks, like not being able to fully control who might abuse information, but the company also says that it's implemented several safeguards informed by internal and external red teams to prevent this from happening. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Now, big news in AI. A zero-revenue startup is now worth a billion dollars overnight. The startup called Character.ai has secured $150 million in funding. Major venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz led the funding round. Character.ai lets users create custom AI characters or avatars. You can then chat with it. It's sort of like a chatbot doing roleplay. The site has many pre-made chatbot avatars. For example, Elon Musk is one of them as some funct- fictional characters as well. For example, you can ask Super Mario what those mushrooms taste like or tell Sigmund Freud about your feelings. I actually created a character called NTD AI and I asked it how character.ai works. I am a neural network trained to replicate human communication on the internet. I create and combine thousands of responses from real people and learn how to generate new responses by finding connections. 
between common phrases and using them to fill in the blanks. I can learn from conversations and use that information to generate more realistic responses, but I cannot actually think or feel. To make it possible for me to create new responses, I need to be able to learn from people. And yes, you can select from a large number of voices. You can also speak to it instead of typing. And you can give it a personality by just writing about it in a text box. It can also generate images in every response. And recent Horowitz general partner Sarah Wang says that all the AI we've seen so far is impressive, but character.ai brings a more elusive aspect, which is that a conversation that can actually hold your attention. She wants an AI platform that not only completes tasks, but can also establish a human-like connection. She believes the applications of AI companionship are limitless, from education to mental to gaming and coaching. It could even reinvent how humans interact with technology. Character.ai was founded by former Google engineers Noam Shazir and Daniel DeFridas back in 2021. Since its launch, it's had nearly 100 million monthly site visits. Users who go on the site spend an average of two hours chatting. We spoke to AI researcher Alexander de Ritter. He runs his own AI firm, InkForAll.com, which uses AI to help marketers. De Ritter has been following Character.ai, and he says it deserves its time in the spotlight. Since the beginning, they have been innovating uh, and making their own lang large language model. They've also built a lot of the technology, the foundational technology, that um, that is now used and more commonplace in many of the different chat assistants that we see. So from that point of view, uh, character.ai, its leadership and its team is very capable. A possible application for this type of character AI could be in video games. We talked to game developer James Deacon while he was at PAX East. He says this kind of AI has limitless applications in gaming. If you look at genres like MMOs and huge scale open world RPGs like Skyrim, the type of asynchronous storytelling that AI allows, where you can have one core critical character path, but be surrounded by all these subsets of support, non-playable characters, I think it's, it's just incredible. Uh, as they continue to develop the more elaborate personalities and kind of character motivations that inspire these AI, I, I think it just becomes a, a really fun tool for every game company. Deegan says game developers are exploring a massive amount of applications. One of his colleagues from Skybound Games is making a game where you can interact with the whole population of virtual characters, and it's all powered by AI chatbots. Character.ai is completely free, but a company representative said it may offer a subscription service in the future. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, Ford losing billions of dollars in its electric car business, but it's hoping that it's going to change soon. Oil prices fell in the midst of the banking turmoil. We ask an analyst where it's going next. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. Ford says it will lose $3 billion on sales of its electric vehicles this year. 
but it's going to expect to hit profit targets of between $9 and $11 billion. The company is looking to hit an 8% profit margin by the end of 2026. But even if that happens, it will still be far less profitable than Tesla, which reported a 22% profit margin in the fourth quarter. Ford also announced a new assembly plant in Tennessee. It plans to build up to 500,000 electric pickup trucks there every year. Now, is energy a risky investment amid a possible economic downturn and recent financial turmoil? An energy expert tells us that in the long term, energy is actually a terrific investment. Joining me is Tom McNulty, president of TJ McNulty and Company. Thanks for joining me, Tom, uh, on this uh, Friday afternoon. It's actually pretty sunny outside. Uh, wish I was there. But let's talk oil right now. Um, a lot of factors weighing on oil prices, uh, re- recession fears, banking troubles recently. Just give us your take. Sure. I mean, I think I think it, as it always does, comes down to tactical versus strategic, short term versus long term. There have been some shocks. Certainly the banking issues, starting with Silicon Valley Bank, and then you know questions of demand, what's really happening in Europe, Asia, United States. But I think, so in the short term, it's actually, I think, harder than the long term. The long term, I think, is very bullish. Energy is just critical for the developing world, and it's certainly gonna still be critical in Europe and the United States. So uh, I think that it comes down to where you operate in the energy complex. Uh, traditional energy, energy transition topics. It's really a, a very complex area, and certain spots, I think, are, are, are doing very well and continue, will continue to do very well. You know, people have told me that maybe energy at, at, at the moment could be a risky asset. Maybe for short-term investors, maybe energy is not a good bet right now. Yeah, I, I, I tend to be contrarian on that. Uh, you have to think of it in a couple of ways. I think you and I have talked about this before. First of all, at, uh, oil and gas have to be separated. They're not the same, and they're used for very different end results. Natural gas is extremely critical. It's become more and more important. It's part of the food uh, fertilizer supply chain and the power generation complexes around the world. So natural gas comes from upstream oil and gas companies, the midstream transporting it to markets. And so crude oil itself perhaps over time flattens out and declines in in demand depending on what happens. But I just don't think natural gas can. We're seeing what happened in Europe with the war continues to happen. You know, natural gas is still that critical molecule CH4. It's going to be around for a very long time. Depending on your energy transition thesis, you know, a complete ban on fossil fuels just can't work because natural gas is a fossil fuel and it's part of the food food supply. So that, that just can't be fixed in the short term. So again, it depends where you are in energy. I don't agree that that, uh, you know, in, in certainly in the long and medium term, that um, it's, not, it's a bad place for allocation of capital. I just don't agree with that. What about oil specifically? What's your outlook on that in the short term? Yeah, oil has, has traded down, uh, you know, with the bank crisis, it traded back down into the 60s for WTI. But keep in mind, you know, the long term uh, mean reversion oil prices, you know, averages over decades are much lower than where we are now. Uh, and so oil prices are still fairly healthy uh, from a historic uh, point of view. If there is demand that drops because of recession, you know, it'll soften, but uh, it has a long way to go 
to where it has been when it's been very low, if you look at charts. So I think oil demand is kind of flat. Maybe there's some weakness. I think natural gas demand actually will increase. The latter half of this year into next year, I think it will increase a great deal. But when people think of investors, you have to realize that the companies that operate in oil and gas are often the same, right? It's not easy to find a pure play oil or gas uh, company. They exist, certainly. But the bigger companies that are public tend to do both. So it's hard to separate. And when you're making investment at cap capital allocation decisions, you know, the, the, guy, the guys that are playing in natural gas have to be taken seriously. Yeah, I think it's possible that energy has a lot of upside potential maybe in the long run. But thank you very much for the conversation today. Tom, always a pleasure talking to you. Always great to see you. Have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Taking another break, still to come, a new report looks at how much of a return taxpayers are getting from tax dollars, which states win. Could empty offices solve New York City's housing crisis? Officials are trying to change the rules to bring that closer to reality. We'll take an in-depth look. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back again. Who do you think gets a better return on investment for their tax dollars? Taxpayers in blue states or red states? Well, according to a report from personal finance website Wallet Hub, taxpayers in red states tend to get more for their tax dollars. States with highest return on investment were New Hampshire, followed by Florida, Alaska, South Dakota, and Texas. The lowest were California, Hawaii, New Mexico, Arkansas, and Delaware. Americans will have until April 18th to submit their taxes to the IRS. New York City's housing and workspace needs have changed in the wake of the pandemic. Nearly one-fifth of commercial space in the main business district of Manhattan is currently vacant. Now, state and local leaders are pushing for looser restrictions on converting office space to housing. Tamara Lenstorm reports. In the wake of a pandemic that fostered a flourishing remote work economy, New York, like other cities across the country, has a problem. Not enough housing and too many empty offices. We're looking at an 18% vacancy rate in office buildings in Manhattan. Uh, we have a housing crisis. Uh, we know that there are buildings here, office buildings, that would be better served to be housing. City Planning Director Dan Gorodnik is hoping to help make that happen. Private developers have long sought to refurbish commercial spaces for residential use, with some 50 developers undertaking the journey over the past decade. This 24-story commercial building in Lower Manhattan is one such project, purchased by the Van Barton Group in 2014. We'll have a grand staircase, circular staircase. Joey Cellelli, the managing director of Van Barton, said the plans were originally to upgrade the office space. As the, the pandemic hit, uh, it made us really reevaluate um, our office spaces, um, and in particular this one. Once completed, he said, the building will offer 588 apartments for rent. But it's a project that's hard to replicate. There are very few buildings that are able to actually take advantage of this opportunity. 
That's because the current policies in New York City make these projects difficult, limiting the buildings that can be converted based on when they were built and what neighborhood they're in. A new plan by city and state leaders aims to change that. By expanding the eligibility, changing the, the date of construction from 1961 to 1990, expanding the geography of where you can be eligible. Still, developers face a host of issues when repurposing commercial buildings that drive up the costs. Many modern office buildings don't have windows that open, for example, or the floor plans are just too deep for apartments. Despite these challenges, New York City Mayor Eric Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul are hoping their efforts to update the laws governing eligibility and plans to offer tax incentives might make the projects more attractive to developers. If the new policies do pass, the city estimates about 140 million square feet of office space would become eligible for conversion into homes. Now, if you're looking for a reason to renovate, well, here's one. You never know what you could find behind the walls. A couple in northern England was remodeling their apartment kitchen when workers found two murals believed to be nearly 400 years old behind the walls. Historians say the artwork is from the 17th century. It depicts a biblical scene. The history department of the UK government is assisting in having the murals documented and will look after them for the couple. And that's all today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.